Chapter One of Jewels of Gwalor. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phil Chenevere. Jewels of Gwalor by Robert Howard. Chapter One. Paths of Intrigue. The cliffs rose sheer from the jungle, towering ramparts of stone that glinted jade-blue and dull crimson in the rising sun, and curved away and away to east and west, above the waving emerald ocean of fronds and leaves. It looked insurmountable, that giant palisade with its sheer curtains of solid rock in which bits of quartz winked dazzlingly in the sunlight. But the man who was working his tedious way upward was already halfway to the top. He came of a race of hillmen accustomed to scaling forbidden crags, and he was a man of unusual strength and agility. His only garment was a pair of short red silk breeks, and his sandals were slung to his back out of the way, as were his sword and dagger. The man was powerfully built, supple as a panther. His skin was bronzed by the sun, his square-cut black mane confined by a silver band about his temples. His iron muscles, quick eye, and sure feet served him well here, for it was a climb to test these qualities to the utmost. A hundred and fifty feet below him waved the jungle. An equal distance above him the rim of the cliffs was etched against the morning sky. He labored like one driven by the necessity of haste, yet he was forced to move at a snail's pace, clinging like a fly on a wall. His groping hands and feet found niches and knobs, precarious holes at best, and sometimes he virtually hung by his fingernails. Yet upward he went, clawing, squirming, fighting for every foot. At times he paused to rest his aching muscles, and, shaking the sweat out of his eyes, twisted his head to stare searchingly out over the jungle, combing the green expanse for any trace of human life or motion. Now the summit was not far above him, and he observed, only a few feet above his head, a break in the sheer stone of the cliff. An instant later he had reached it a small cavern just below the edge of the rim. As his head rose above the lip of its floor, he grunted. He clung there, his elbows hooked over the lip. The cave was so tiny that it was little more than a niche cut in the stone. It held an occupant, a shriveled mummy, cross-legged, arms folded on the withered breast, upon which the shrunken head was sunk, sat in the little cavern. The limbs were bound in place with rawhide thongs, which had become mere rotted wisps. If the form had ever been clothed, the ravages of time had long ago reduced the garments to dust. But thrust between the crossed arms and the shrunken breast, there was a roll of parchment, yellowed with age to the color of old ivory. The climber stretched forth a long arm and wrenched away this cylinder. Without investigation he thrust it into his girdle and hauled himself up until he was standing in the opening of the niche. 
A spring upward, and he caught the rim of the cliffs, and pulled himself up and over almost with the same motion. There he halted, panting, and stared downward. It was like looking into the interior of a vast bowl, rimmed by a circular stone wall. The floor of the bowl was covered with trees and denser vegetation, though nowhere did the growth duplicate the jungle denseness of the outer forest. The cliffs marched around it without a break, and of uniform height. It was a freak of nature, not to be paralleled, perhaps, in the whole world. A vast, natural amphitheater, a circular bit of forested plain, three or four miles in diameter, cut off from the rest of the world, and confined within the ring of those palisaded cliffs. But the man on the cliffs did not devote his thoughts to marveling at the topographical phenomenon. With tense eagerness he searched the treetops below him, and exhaled a gusty sigh when he caught the glint of marble domes amid the twinkling green. It was no myth, then. Below him lay the fabulous and deserted palace of Alcmenon. Conan the Cimmerian, late of the Baraka Isles of the Black Coast, and of many other climes where life ran wild, had come to the kingdom of Kishan following the lure of a fabled treasure that outshone the horde of the Turanian kings. Kishan was a barbaric kingdom lying in the eastern hinterlands of Kush, where the broad grasslands merge with the forests that roll up from the south. The people were a mixed race, a dusky nobility ruling a population that was largely pure negro. The rulers, princes, and high priests claimed descent from a white race which, in a mythical age, had ruled a kingdom whose capital city was Alcmenon. Conflicting legends sought to explain the reason for that race's eventual downfall and the abandonment of the city by the survivors. Equally nebulous were the tales of the Teeth of Gwalor, the treasure of Alcmenon. But these misty legends had been enough to bring Conan to Kishon, over vast distances of plain, river-laced jungle, and mountains. He had found Kishon, which itself was considered mythical by many northern and western nations, and he had heard enough to confirm the rumors of the treasure that men called the Teeth of Gwalor. But its hiding-place he could not learn, and he was confronted with the necessity of explaining his presence in Kishon. Unattached strangers were not welcome there. But he was not nonplussed. With cool assurance he made his offer to the stately, plumed, suspicious grandees of the barbarically magnificent court. He was a professional fighting man. In search of employment, he said, he had come to Kishan. For a price he would train the armies of Kishan and lead them against Punt, their hereditary enemy, whose recent successes in the field had aroused the fury of Kishan's irascible king. This proposition was not so audacious as it might seem. Conan's fame had preceded him, even into distant Kishan. His exploits as a chief of the black corsairs, those wolves of the southern coasts, had made his name known, admired, and feared throughout the black kingdoms. 
He did not refuse tests devised by the dusky lords. Skirmishes along the borders were incessant, affording the Cimmerian plenty of opportunities to demonstrate his ability at hand-to-hand -hand fighting. His reckless ferocity impressed the lords of Kishan, already aware of his reputation as a leader of men, and the prospects seemed favorable. All Conan secretly desired was employment to give him legitimate excuse for remaining in Kishan long enough to locate the hiding-place of the Teeth of Gwalor. Then there came an interruption. Merqui came to Kishan at the head of an embassy from Zimbabwe. Merqui was a Stygian, an adventurer and a rogue, whose wits had recommended him to the twin kings of the great hybrid trading kingdom, which lay many days' march to the east. He and the Cimmerian knew each other of old, and without love. Merqui likewise had a proposition to make to the king of Kishan, and it also concerned the conquest of Punt, which kingdom, incidentally, lying east of Kishan, had recently expelled the Zimbabwean traders and burned their fortresses. His offer outweighed even the prestige of Conan. He pledged himself to invade Punt from the east with a host of black spearmen, Shemitish archers, and mercenary swordsmen, and to aid the king of Kishan to annex the hostile kingdom. The benevolent kings of Zimbabwe desired only a monopoly of the trade of Kishan and her tributaries, and as a pledge of good faith, some of the teeth of Gwalor. These would be put to no base usage. Thutmerki hastened to explain to the suspicious chieftains they would be placed in the temple of Zimbabwe, beside the squat gold idols of Dagon and Durkito sacred guests in the holy shrine of the kingdom, to seal the covenant between Kishan and Zimbabwe. This statement brought a savage grin to Conan's hard lips. The Cimmerian made no attempt to match wits and intrigue with Tutmerqui and his Shemitish partner Zargiba. He knew that if Tutmerqui won his point, he would insist on the instant banishment of his rival. There was but one thing for Conan to do. Find the jewels before the king of Kishan made up his mind, and flee with them. But by this time he was certain that they were not hidden in Kishia, the royal city which was a swarm of thatched huts crowding about a mud wall that enclosed a palace of stone and mud and bamboo. While he fumed with nervous impatience, the high priest Gorulga announced that before any decision could be reached, the will of the gods must be ascertained concerning the proposed alliance with Zimbabwe and the pledge of objects long held holy and inviolate. The oracle of Alcminon must be consulted. This was an awesome thing, and it caused tongues to wag excitedly in palace and beehive hut. Not for a century had the priests visited the silent city. The oracle men said, was the Princess Yelaya, the last ruler of Alcminon, who had died in the full bloom of her youth and beauty, and whose body had miraculously remained unblemished throughout the ages. Of old priests had made their way into the haunted city, and she had taught them wisdom. 
The last priest to seek the oracle had been a wicked man who had sought to steal for himself the curiously cut jewels that men called the Teeth of Gwalor. But some doom had come upon him in the deserted place from which his acolytes, fleeing, had told tales of horror that had for a hundred years frightened the priests from the city and the oracle. But Gorulga, the present high priest, as one confident in his knowledge of his own integrity, announced that he would go with a handful of followers to revive the ancient custom. And in the excitement tongues buzzed indiscreetly, and Conan caught the clue for which he had sought for weeks, the overheard whisper of a lesser priest that sent the Cimmerian stealing out of Kishia the night before the dawn when the priests were to start. Riding as hard as he dared, for a night and a day and a night, he came in the early dawn to the cliffs of Alcminon, which stood in the southwestern corner of the kingdom, amid uninhabited jungle which was taboo to common men. None but the priests dared approach the haunted vale within a distance of many miles, and not even a priest had entered Alcminon for a hundred years. No man had ever climbed these cliffs, legend said, and none but the priests knew the secret entrance into the valley. Conan did not waste time looking for it. Steeps that balked these people, horsemen and dwellers of plain and level forest, were not impossible for a man born in the rugged hills of Samaria. Now on the summit of the cliffs he looked down into the circular valley and wondered what plague, war, or superstition had driven the members of that ancient race forth from their stronghold to mingle with and be absorbed by the tribes that hemmed them in. This valley had been their citadel. There the palace stood, and there only the royal family and their court dwelt. The real city stood outside the cliffs. Those waving masses of green jungle vegetation hid its ruins. But the domes that glistened in the leaves below him were the unbroken pinnacles of the royal palace of Alcminon, which had defied the corroding ages. Swinging a leg over the rim he went down swiftly. The inner side of the cliffs was more broken, not quite so sheer. In less than half the time it had taken him to ascend the outer side, he dropped to the swarded valley floor. With one hand on his sword he looked alertly about him. There was no reason to suppose men lied when they said that Alcminon was empty and deserted, haunted only by the ghosts of the dead past. But it was Conan's nature to be suspicious and wary. The silence was primordial. Not even a leaf quivered on a branch. When he bent to peer under the trees he saw nothing but the marching rows of trunks, receding and receding into the blue gloom of the deep woods. Nevertheless he went warily, sword in hand, his restless eyes combing the shadows from side to side, his springy tread making no sound on the sward. All about him he saw signs of an ancient civilization. Marble fountains, voiceless and crumbling, stood in circles of slender trees, whose patterns were too symmetrical to have been a chance of nature. Forest growth and underbrush had invaded the evenly planned groves, but their outlines were still visible. 
Broad pavements ran away under the trees, broken and with grass growing through the wide cracks. He glimpsed walls with ornamented copings, lattices of carven stone that might once have served as the walls of pleasure pavilions. Ahead of him, through the trees, the domes gleamed, and the bulk of the structure supporting them became more apparent as he advanced. Presently, pushing through a screen of vine-tangled branches, he came into a comparatively open space, where the trees straggled, unencumbered by undergrowth, and saw before him the wide, pillared portico of the palace. As he mounted the broad marble steps, he noted that the building was in far better state of preservation than the lesser structures he had glimpsed. The thick walls and massive pillars seemed too powerful to crumble before the assault of time and the elements. The same enchanted quiet brooded over all. The cat-like pad of his sandaled feet seemed startlingly loud in the stillness. Somewhere in this palace lay the effigy or image which had, in times past, served as oracle for the priests of Kishan. And somewhere in the palace, unless that indiscreet priest had babbled a lie, was hidden the treasure of the forgotten kings of Alcmenon. Conan passed into a broad, lofty hall lined with tall columns, between which arches gaped their door long rotted away. He traversed this in a twilight dimness, and at the other end passed through great double-valved bronze doors, which stood partly open, as they might have stood for centuries. He emerged into a vast domed chamber, which must have served as audience hall for the kings of Alcmenon. It was octagonal in shape, and the great dome, up to which the lofty ceiling curved obviously, was cunningly pierced, for the chamber was much better lighted than the hall which led to it. At the further side of the great room there rose a dais, with broad lapis lazuli steps leading up to it, and on that dais there stood a massive chair with ornate arms and a high back, which once doubtless supported a cloth of gold canopy. Conan grunted explosively, and his eyes lit. The golden throne of Alcmenon, named in immemorial legendary. He weighed it with a practiced eye. It represented a fortune in itself, if he were but able to bear it away. Its richness fired his imagination concerning the treasure itself, and made him burn with eagerness. His fingers itched to plunge among the gems he had heard described by storytellers in the market squares of Kashia, who repeated the tales handed down from mouth to mouth through the centuries. Jewels not to be duplicated in the world, rubies, emeralds, diamonds, bloodstones, opals, sapphires, the loot of the ancient world. He had expected to find the oracle effigy seated on the throne, but since it was not, it was probably placed in some other part of the palace, if indeed such a thing really existed. But since he had turned his face toward Kishan, so many myths had proved to be realities that he did not doubt that he would find some kind of image or god. Behind the throne there was a narrow arched doorway 
which doubtless had been masked by hangings in the days of Alcmenon's life. He glanced through it, and saw that it led into an alcove, empty, and with a narrow corridor leading off from it at right angles. Turning away from it, he spied another arch to the left of the dais, and it, unlike the others, was furnished with a door. Nor was it any common door. The portal was of the same rich metal as the throne, and carved with many curious arabesques. At his touch it swung open so readily that its hinges might recently have been oiled. Inside he halted, staring. He was in a square chamber of no great dimensions, whose marble walls rose to an ornate ceiling inlaid with gold. Gold friezes ran about the base and the top of the walls, and there was no door other than the one through which he had entered. But he noted these details mechanically. His whole attention was centered on the shape which lay on an ivory dais before him. He had expected an image, probably carved with the skill of a forgotten art. But no art could mimic the perfection of the figure that lay before him. It was no effigy of stone or metal or ivory. It was the actual body of a woman, and by what dark art the ancients had preserved that form unblemished for so many ages, Conan could not even guess. The very garments she wore were intact, and Conan scowled at that, a vague uneasiness stirring at the back of his mind. The arts that preserved the body should not have affected the garments, yet there they were gold breastplate set with concentric circles of small gems, gilded sandals, and a short silken skirt upheld by a jeweled girdle. Neither cloth nor metal showed any sign of decay. Yelaya was coldly beautiful, even in death. Her body was like alabaster, slender yet voluptuous. A great crimson jewel gleamed against the darkly piled foam of her hair. Conan stood frowning down at her, and then tapped the dais with his sword. Possibilities of a hollow containing the treasure occurred to him, but the dais rang solid. He turned and paced the chamber in some indecision. Where should he search first in the limited time at his disposal? The priest he had overheard babbling to a courtesan had said the treasure was hidden in the palace, but that included a space of considerable vastness. He wondered if he should hide himself until the priests had come and gone, and then renew the search. But there was a strong chance that they might take the jewels with them when they returned to Kashia, for he was convinced that Thutmerkri had corrupted Gorulga. Conan could predict Thutmerkri's plans from his knowledge of the man. He knew that it had been Thutmerkri who had proposed the conquest of Punt to the kings of Zimbabwe, which conquest was but one move toward their real goal, the capture of the teeth of Gwalor. Those wary kings would demand proof that the treasure really existed before they made any move. The jewels Thutmerkri asked as a pledge would furnish that proof. With positive evidence of the treasure's reality, the kings of Zimbabwe would move. Punt would be invaded simultaneously from the east and the west. 
But the Zimbabweans would see to it that the Kishani did most of the fighting, and then, when both Punt and Kishan were exhausted from the struggle, the Zimbabweans would crush both races, loot Kishan, and take the treasure by force, if they had to destroy every building and torture every living human in the kingdom. But there was always another possibility. If Thutmerkri could get his hands on the hoard, it would be characteristic of the man to cheat his employers, steal the jewels for himself, and decamp, leaving the Zimbabwean emissaries holding the sack. Conan believed that this consulting of the oracle was but a ruse to persuade the king of Kishan to accede to Thutmerkri's wishes, for he never for a moment doubted that Gorulga was as subtle and devious as all the rest mixed up in this grand swindle. Conan had not approached the high priest himself, because in the game of bribery he would have no chance against Thutmerkri, and to attempt it would be to play directly into the Stygian's hands. Gorulga could denounce the Cimmerian to the people, establish a reputation for integrity, and rid Thutmerkri of his rival at one stroke. He wondered how Thutmerkri had corrupted the high priest, and just what could be offered as a bribe to a man who had the greatest treasure in the world under his fingers. At any rate, he was sure that the oracle would be made to say that the gods willed it that Kishan should follow Thutmerkri's wishes, and he was sure, too, that it would drop a few pointed remarks concerning himself. After that, Kashia would be too hot for the Cimmerian, nor had Conan had any intention of returning when he rode away in the night. The oracle chamber held no clue for him. He went forth into the great throne-room, and laid his hands on the throne. It was heavy, but he could tilt it up. The floor beneath a thick marble dais was solid. Again he sought the alcove. His mind clung to a secret crypt near the oracle. Painstakingly he began to tap along the walls, and presently his taps rang hollow at a spot opposite the mouth of the narrow corridor. Looking more closely, he saw that the crack between the marble panel at that point and the next was wider than usual. He inserted a dagger point and pried. Silently the panel swung open, revealing a niche in the wall, but nothing else. He swore feelingly. Aperture was empty, and it did not look as if it had ever served as a crypt for the treasure. Leaning into the niche, he saw a system of tiny holes in the wall, about on a level with a man's mouth. He peered through and grunted understandingly. That was the wall that formed the partition between the alcove and the oracle chamber. Those holes had not been visible in the chamber. Conan grinned. This explained the mystery of the oracle, but it was a bit cruder than he had expected. Gorulga would plant either himself or some trusted minion in that niche to talk through the holes, and the credulous acolytes would accept it as the veritable voice of Yelaya. Remembering something, the Cimmerian drew forth the roll of parchment he had taken from the mummy, and unrolled it carefully, as it seemed ready to fall to pieces with age. He scowled over the dim characters with which it was covered, 
In his roaming about the world the giant adventurer had picked up a wide smattering of knowledge, particularly including the speaking and reading of many alien tongues. Many a sheltered scholar would have been astonished at the Sumerian's linguistic abilities, for he had experienced many adventures where knowledge of a strange language had meant the difference between life and death. These characters were puzzling, at once familiar and unintelligible, and presently he discovered the reason. They were the characters of archaic Pelishtim, which possessed many points of difference from the modern script with which he was familiar, and which, three centuries ago, had been modified by conquest by a nomad tribe. This older, purer script baffled him. He made out a recurrent phrase, however, which he recognized as a proper name, Beat Yakin. He gathered that it was the name of the writer. Scowling, his lips unconsciously moving as he struggled with the task, he blundered through the manuscript, finding much of it untranslatable and most of the rest of it obscure. He gathered that the writer, the mysterious Bit Yakin, had come from afar with his servants and entered the valley of Alcminon. Much that followed was meaningless, interspersed as it was with unfamiliar phrases and characters. Such as he could translate seemed to indicate the passing of a very long period of time. The name of Yilaya was repeated frequently, and toward the last part of the manuscript it became apparent that Bit-Yakin knew that death was upon him. With a slight start, Conan realized that the mummy in the cavern must be the remains of the writer of the manuscript, the mysterious Pelishtim Bit-Yakin. The man had died, as he had prophesied, and his servants, obviously, had placed him in that open crypt, high up on the cliffs, according to his instructions before his death. It was strange that Bit-Yakin was not mentioned in any of the legends of Alcminon. Obviously he had come to the valley after it had been deserted by the original inhabitants. The manuscript indicated as much. But it seemed peculiar that the priests who came in the old days to consult the oracle had not seen the man or his servants. Conan felt sure that the mummy and this parchment were more than a hundred years old. Bit-Yakin had dwelt in the valley when the priests came of old to bow before dead Yilaya. Yet concerning him the legends were silent, telling only of a deserted city haunted only by the dead. Why had the man dwelt in this desolate spot? And to what unknown destination had his servants departed after disposing of their master's corpse? Conan shrugged his shoulders and thrust the parchment back into his girdle. He started violently, the skin on the backs of his hands tingling. Startlingly, shockingly, in the slumberous stillness, there had boomed the deep, strident clangor of a great gong. He wheeled, crouching like a great cat, sword in hand, glaring down the narrow corridor from which the sound had seemed to come. Had the priest of Kashia arrived? This was improbable, he knew. They would not have had time to reach the valley. But that gong was indisputable evidence of human presence. Conan was basically a direct actionist. Such subtlety as he possessed had been acquired through contact with the more devious races. When taken off guard by some unexpected occurrence, 
he reverted instinctively to type. So now, instead of hiding or slipping away in the opposite direction, as the average man might have done, he ran straight down the corridor in the direction of the sound. His sandals made no more noise than the pads of a panther would have made. His eyes were slits, his lips unconsciously a snarl. Panic had momentarily touched his soul at the shock of that unexpected reverberation, and the red rage of the primitive that is awakened by the threat of peril always lurked close to the surface of the Cimmerian. He emerged presently from the winding corridor into a small open court. Something glinting in the sun caught his eye. It was the gong, a great gold disc, hanging from a gold arm extending from the crumbling wall. A brass mallet lay near, but there was no sound or sight of humanity. The surrounding arches gaped emptily. Conan crouched inside the doorway for what seemed a long time. There was no sound or movement throughout the great palace. His patience exhausted at last. He glided around the curve of the court, peered into the arches, ready to leap either way like a flash of light, or to strike right or left as a cobra strikes. He reached the gong, stared into the arch nearest it. He saw only a dim chamber, littered with the debris of decay. Beneath the gong the polished marble flags showed no footprints, but there was a scent in the air, a faintly fetid odor he could not classify. His nostrils dilated like those of a wild beast as he sought in vain to identify it. He turned toward the arch. With appalling suddenness the seemingly solid flags splintered and gave way under his feet. Even as he fell he spread wide his arms and caught the edges of the aperture that gaped beneath him. The edges crumbled off under his clutching fingers. Down into utter darkness he shot, into black icy water that gripped him and whirled him away with breathless speed. End of chapter 1